Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. I read a funny story this week. Uh, It was about a group of seminary students, and they were playing basketball. And while they're playing, they noticed uh, there was a janitor kind of off in a corner, and they saw him reading. And they took a little closer look, and they saw that he was reading the Bible. And so they went up to him, and they asked him, hey, what are you, uh, what are you reading there? Which, uh, which book of the Bible? And he said, oh, I'm reading uh, the book of Revelation. And so hearing this, these young scholars thought, oh, um, we should try to help this, this poor soul understand uh, such a complicated book. And so they asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, yes, yes, I do. And then they smugly inquired about his interpretation. Uh, the lesser educated but better informed man answered this. Revelation is about this. Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. <laughs> and that is a great understanding of the book of Revelation. And so today, that is the book that we are starting. Uh, today is the first of our series, uh, The Revelation of Jesus. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, A Hope for Every Generation. And so uh, let's talk about, uh, before we kind of jump into the book, uh, there's, there's some things that I think will be helpful for us to, to kind of set the tone and uh, to understand how we're going to navigate this book. Um, like I said, the approach of Jesus is going to win is a wonderful approach to this book. But there are other approaches that are not so great. And so I want to talk about those a little bit. There's many that have viewed this book uh, as too complicated, too controversial to even approach it. Uh, Many approach this book as sort of a prophetic jigsaw puzzle to be solved in the final generation of Christians. Uh, many sensationalize end times prophecy, and uh, they'll kind of read the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. Uh, many are just preoccupied, uh, preoccupied with Satan and the pervasiveness of evil. So those are some not so good approaches to this book. And so how are we to understand this last book of the Bible. How are we to interpret it? And so I want to tell you this. I am not giving you anything new here. Everything that I give you in this series has been said before. I have no special interpretation, no new interpretation. These are uh, historical approaches to the last book of the Bible. So what is the book of Revelation? Well, one, it's a letter. It's a letter that is written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He is the author of the fourth gospel and the three New Testament letters, first, second, third John. And so this book 
is written to seven major uh, churches in the Roman, uh, the Roman province of Asia Minor. Let's take a look at uh, the map, and you can kind of get a sense of the geography here. So uh, in the bottom left, we see a little blue circle that is where John is writing from, the island of Patmos. And then over to the right of that, we see Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and we see the location of these seven churches. And so John is in exile on this island of Patmos, and these are the churches that are on the mainland. And so this is a historical letter that is written and is circulated among these churches. All right, so Revelation is a letter, but it is not just any old letter. It is an apocalyptic letter. Now, apocalyptic is a literary genre that utilizes visions and symbolic language to depict the cosmic struggle between God and Satan. That's how we think of apocalyptic literature uh, when it comes to uh, biblical. And so the visions in the book of Revelation are symbolic, but they represent a very real struggle. This book gives us the historic events of the world, but it does it from God's perspective. And so we get a view of history looking from God's perspective instead of from man's perspective. Let's take a look at uh, verse 3, uh, just the first part of verse 3. Uh, there it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. So very interesting, very different from other books of the Bible. There's this emphasis on actually hearing uh, the words of Revelation, of hearing it read aloud. And I think one of the, the goals of that is that this book is meant to, to stir our imaginations as we uh, look at the perspective of the, of the world from God's vantage point. And so we get these really fantastic, we almost feel like we're watching Lord of the Rings or something, these fantastic imagery. And so we want to hear it read. And so I would encourage you uh, throughout this series, listen to this book of the Bible read. If you go on to almost any Bible uh, site application, uh, there's usually an option to hear it. And so listen to this book. Blessed are those who hear it. Okay, so it's a letter, it's apocalyptic, and it is prophecy. It is predictive prophecy. And so this book shows us events that are certain to happen in the future. Now, with that said, we don't want to confuse uh, John's book of Revelation here with something like Nostradamus, right? So this is not just, as it's been quoted in the past, history before it is written. The goal is not to just give us a bunch of specific details about future events, but rather there is a bigger picture. 
it is Jesus is going to win. It is a picture of Jesus's victory. And so the prophetic elements, the future telling elements are given in service to what Jesus has accomplished in the story of redemption. So we got to we got to keep the bigger picture, keep the main thing, the main thing. All right, so that is what revelation is. It's a letter, it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic. Now, if we look at the context of who this book is written to, uh, we see that it is written to the persecuted church. The backdrop is the Roman Empire and their practice of emperor worship. And so at this time, Rome has a massive military and they have political influence that pries into every facet of life. Now, the wrath of Emperor Nero, who lived in the 60s of, again, uh, the first century, his, uh, his evilness is kind of the, the face behind evil in this situation here. So Nero is a guy who just unleashed a savage attack upon the church. He burned Christians as human torches in his garden. He fed Christians to lions and wild beasts in the Colosseum for sport, for entertainment. And he is uh, known to have put to death both Paul and Peter, the apostles. And so this is a bad dude. Evil, evil. Another aspect of the the backdrop of this book is the destruction of the temple, the sacking of Jerusalem in uh, 70 AD, again, first century. And so the time that this book is written is most likely in the 90s of that first century. And so the current emperor, as John would have been writing, was Domitian. And so, again, he is... uh, Uh, He is evil as well. We know that uh, he left his own brother to die, that he seduced his own niece, that he killed people just for making jokes about him, and above all, he demanded to be addressed as Lord and God. So this is, again, kind of the the cultural background to, uh, to John's book here. Now, the question of how we interpret this book is one, again, that I just want to set a tone for us. How do we interpret all these these visions and all these symbols? Well, the Old Testament is our guide. Two-thirds of the book of Revelation contain at least one allusion to an Old Testament passage. And so the only code language John uses is the Bible itself. So if we want to make sense of these symbols, we must find them in the Old Testament. There are kind of different schools of thought on how exactly to to understand this book. And so I want to give you a couple just to kind of wrap your head around how people have Uh, approach this book. So one view um, is a view called the preterist view. 
And so this view depicts everything in the book of Revelation happening prior to 70 AD, prior to the sacking of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple. Uh, that is one view. So it looks at all these contexts, uh, all, all these uh, events happening in the past. They've already happened. Another view is one called the futurist view. And so that depicts uh, basically, uh, after chapter 3, everything is still in the future. It has not happened yet. Uh, and so it depicts the final period before Jesus comes. Now, this is a very popular view. It is not the view uh, that I hold, but it is a very popular view. And it's popular because it's been uh, made into so many uh, books and films uh, guys like Tim LaHaye, um, guys like, uh, oh, who am I thinking of? His name escaped me, but uh, Hal Lindsey. Uh, books, movies, uh, you may have seen uh, Left Behind or read those books. This is coming at it from a futurist view. Again, that this is all to happen at some point in the future, the final generation of Christians. But the approach that I am taking, and I think the approach that makes the most sense, is something called the redemptive historical approach. That this book is not just uh, in the past for the first generation. And it's not uh, just for the last generation of Christians, but rather that it is for every generation. Every generation from Jesus' first coming to his second coming with the purpose of this, to give hope in the face of trials and persecution. persecution, And those things have existed and will continue to exist throughout the church age. Now, we see in verse 3 and in verse 1 uh, these language uh, markers of something happening soon. So in verse 3, uh, the time is near. In verse 1, the things that must soon take place. So here's the question. How can we say that this is a description of the entire church age with uh, these comments of something soon must take place, that the time is near? Well, the answer is this, that Scripture tells us that. Again, Revelation is understood through the lens of the rest of scriptures. I'm going to give you a couple things here. Um, Peter declares to us that the last days were already at hand just 50 days after Jesus's resurrection uh, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the author states that the coming of Christ means that Christians in the first century were already living in the last days. Okay, so the Bible tells us that the last days are the period from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. We call that the church age. So the last days are the church age, the entire church age. And so uh, when the opening uh, words tell us that something is soon to happen, it's the church age. 
They're at the beginning of the church age. And so these events are of the last days that they are in, which we are still in. It's an age of the church. Okay. Um, again, Revelation, what it is doing is uh, it's showing us that the church age is one of continual trial and persecution for Christians, for the church. And Revelation, what it does is it gives us, again, the heavenly perspective in vivid imagery to sustain us and to give us hope in the last days, in these days, that church age. Okay, let's take a look at, again, uh, the first verse. The very first clause that we read is that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of Satan. It's not the revelation of uh, strange beasts and heavenly creatures. Uh, it's not the revelation of evil events, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every page is about him. Those other things are in this book, but that's not what the book is about. This book is about revealing who Jesus is and what he has done. It is about revealing his victory. It's about showing us from the heavenly perspective what's happening in front of us now. And that is to give hope and comfort to every generation in the last days in the church age. Again, so this is a book of hope. Uh, I want to share a quote uh, from you by a guy named Scotty Smith, a favorite pastor of mine. He says this, To hope is to become so familiar with the future of God's story that it invades our daily lives now. By faith, we begin to smell the grass of the new heaven and new earth. The incomparable wonder of what is ahead for God's people are brought to bear on our present, difficult circumstances, and mission opportunities. When our Lord returns, he will make all things new, beautiful, and right. This is a book of hope. Okay, so this book wants to reveal Jesus. So the goal in this is for us to see Jesus. Now let's take a look at uh, these first verses and see exactly how uh, we are to see Jesus. I want to read to you again uh, verses 4 and 5. So John introduces us. He says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So he extends grace and peace, not from him, but from God, the author of this book. And true grace, true peace can only be extended from God. It is only God that can give us truly 
what we don't deserve, what we cannot earn, the grace of salvation. And with the grace of salvation comes peace, a peace within our own hearts, a peace between us and God, a peace with one another, a peace with God's creation. Only God can give it. And so James starts there, grace and peace to you from the triune God. And so we get a picture of the Trinity in these first verses here. We see uh, first the Father. He is listed as this. He's described as this, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, this is actually a reference to Exodus 3, 14, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And God speaks to him and tells him what to do. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God gives the covenant name, Yahweh. I am. I am who I am sent you. And so we have a a form of that same verb here. God who is. Who is with his people. Who was with his people throughout history. And who is to come. So again, we get this Old Testament reference of Exodus 3, God the Father. Next, we move to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is uh, a little bit tricky here because, again, remember we're dealing with uh, symbols, right? There's things signified here. And so the Holy Spirit is listed as the seven spirits. Now, again, to make sense of that, what is John talking about, we need to go back to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you here, but if you take a look at it, um, Zechariah is given this vision, and he sees all these things, and he's trying to make sense of it. He sees um, these sevens in there, right? So we have those highlighted, and he's asking... What is this? What are these? What are all these sevens that I'm seeing? And uh, he's told this. Uh, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by my power, but by my spirit. So all these sevens that you are seeing is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so again, we get this Trinitarian formula at the top of Revelation the Father, the Spirit, and then the Son. We get Jesus. And so, uh, again, those are the only three because those are God who can deliver grace and peace. And so we start with this Trinitarian reading of grace and peace. Now let's take a look at verses 7 and 8. And there we get a picture of Jesus now as judge. There it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We'll, uh, we'll stop at 7 for the moment here. And so again, we get another Old Testament reference here. Now, this one you should recognize. Jesus coming on the clouds. Where is that from? It's from Daniel 7. We went through Daniel in the fall. 
So let's take a look at it there just to uh, remind ourselves. Daniel 7.13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so if you remember in Daniel, Daniel's vision of these terrible beasts coming up out of the sea, and the son of man comes to defeat them, to destroy them. He comes out of the clouds. And so here in Revelation, we get this, uh, this same language uh, that is this picture of Jesus coming out of the clouds as judge. Then when we go to verse 8, we have God speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now again, we have another Old Testament reference here. The Alpha and the Omega, those are the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is saying, I am the first and the last, right? I am the beginning, I am the end. And this is a reference to Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last, okay? So the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he says this, again, who is, who was, and who is to come. And so what's amazing here is the verse before we have Jesus described as the one who is to come with the clouds. And in verse 8, it says the one to come is Jesus, the Lord Almighty. And so John here is proclaiming the deity of Jesus. Amazing. So we get the identity of Jesus, and then we're told his character, his priestly character. Grace and peace are extended, and here's how. Let's look at verse 5. To him, that is Jesus, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Friends, that is the gospel. One, the love of Jesus. This is just like what we were talking about with community groups, is that Jesus knows us. That love is a present love. His love is a, a love that knows us fully, and it is us known in him, in fellowship with him. And what in a beautiful comfort that is for Christians who are in trials, for Christians who are um, being persecuted, that God's love is there present now for them, for us. And that love is an active love. It is a love that has freed us from sin. Now, the Greek word freed there is actually the word loosen. It's loosened us from sin. Now, when that word is used, um, sometimes it's used of clothing, right? To be uh, loosened from clothing, thinking about wearing a, a heavy garment, right? And to be loosened from it, uh, to be released from it. Or um, it's also used uh, with regard to armor when it's taken off, the unbuckling of armor. With a person, it's used of setting a prisoner free.
And so John is telling us that the love of Jesus, the love of God is one that sets us free from sin because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That he paid the penalty for our sin. And so we no longer have any debt to God for that sin. We have been freed from that debt. And we've been freed from the binding influence of sin's power, right? We can say no to sin now. Now, here's what we're not free from. We are not free uh, from trials, We are not free from suffering. We are not free from persecution. But we are free from the power for those things to steal our joy. This last year has been a rough one. And we've already seen rough circumstances in the new year, in 2021. And so this book is a hope and a comfort For those who have been freed from sin, from those who can no longer have, um, uh, be under the, the power of circumstances to steal our joy. Now, maybe you've had some joy stolen this year. We all have, right? But that doesn't have to be the final word. The more we look to Jesus, the more we regain that joy because we find our joy in him, in what he has accomplished, and not in our present circumstance. So this should lead us to respond. And that's what uh, we see in verse 3. Verse 3 says this uh, at the end. We have all this blessing. Blessed is the one who reads it. Uh, Blessed are those who hear it. And by hear, what is meant is not just Uh, The sound comes to their ears, but those who believe it, those who hear with faith and belief, that is where blessing comes. And those who keep what is written in it, meaning those who obey the commands of God. And so as we see these incredible pictures of Jesus, it should move us to faith, to belief, It should move us to obedience. That is the goal of Revelation, that we respond to this revelation of Jesus. Okay, so what does that revelation uh, response look like? One, it is worship. The revelation of Jesus should move us to worship, to gather to sing, to pray, but also to just live for him, to worship in every sphere, in all that we do. And so it means that we are good employers, that we are good employees, that we bring glory to God in all that we do, that we act with uh, integrity, with honesty, that we treat people with dignity and with humility. That is all part of the worship of God by glorifying him in everything that we do, in our work, in our rest. Uh, The response again of obedience. 
keeping what we hear, obeying what we hear. And I think, uh, and this is a hard one, but uh, having a willingness to suffer. We're told the time is near. We are in the age of trial and persecution. And so we must have a willingness to enter into that because of what is coming. We are told that God's people are a kingdom. Let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. And so we are not just individuals, right? We, we talk about this in our service every week. Uh, we're not just forgiven individuals. We are a forgiven people. And we are part of God's kingdom. And we have uh, responsibilities to our fellow kingdom members in God's church. And the kingdom of Jesus is not defined by, by territories. Here's its boundaries, but it is defined by faith. Okay, so we are part of a kingdom. And then it tells us this, that God's people are priests. What does a priest do? Now, in the Old Testament, Priests were mediators of worship and of sacrifice. But because Jesus has freed us from sin, there are no barriers now to hinder our fellowship with God. And so we are all like priests with access to God. Now, people sometimes uh, will approach me and ask me, hey, Dan, can you uh, pray for this or that? Because I know that God really hears your prayers. And, and I remind people that uh, the idea that God would hear me more than you is completely false. If you are a Christian, you are a fellow priest. You have equal access to God because of what Christ has accomplished. And so as God's priest, we actually have a responsibility to come to church each week and offer up praises to God. Isn't that interesting? So if we think again of the, the Old Testament priests, they would offer sacrifices up to God. That was their job. And so uh, some of the sacrifices they offered, one would be the sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice for sins. But we don't have to make that sacrifice because Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. And so that, that sacrifice no longer needs to be made. But the sacrifices that we make are th uh, thanksgiving sacrifices, sacrifices of praise and thanks. And so as fellow priests, we have a role to fulfill to come to church every Sunday and offer up the sacrifice of thanks, the sacrifice of praise to God. You should remind yourself every Sunday, I need to go do my priestly duty today. I need to go and offer sacrifice of praise to God and even on Zoom, right? We have a responsibility, even if we can't meet in person, we have it 
and we do it on Zoom until we can gather in person on a regular basis again. All right, so another thing that priests do is they bear the responsibility of declaring God's word to the world. And so each of us bear that responsibility of sharing the gospel. That is not a job for pastors alone. That is a job for every Christian because we are all priests. We all bear that responsibility. Let's take a look at Romans 12.1. Paul says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so again, this is a priestly sacrifice that we are all uh, commanded to participate in. And so again, this is to use every aspect of our lives to say thank you to God. Uh, we've talked about it in our work, right, how we do that, but also in our rest. We um, worship God in the way that we rest, one, by actually resting. And I don't mean just sleeping, but really resting, delighting in God's gifts, resting in what Jesus has accomplished, enjoying God's gifts, and not abusing those gifts, and that, again, is something that we are all tempted with. But if we consider ourselves priests, as the book of Revelation tells us, then this is our work. So in Jesus, we are all priests. It is not just a group of Christians that are priests, but every Christian. You cannot be a Christian without being a priest. And that was one of the uh, focal teachings of the Protestant Reformation. It's a teaching called the priesthood of all believers. The Bible only gives two categories of priests. The first is Jesus, the great high priest. And the second is all of his people. We are a kingdom of priests in the name of God. Now, at the same time, there are a variety of gifts and callings within the church. There's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons who serve and who lead the church, yet there are no priests other than the entire body of believers who are called to the ministry of worship, of evangelism, and of holy sacrificial service. This is essential to the life and the work of of the church. Okay, so what a beautiful picture that Revelation gives us that it is about Jesus. It is about his victory that Jesus wins. It's a book given to the church in every age for hope and comfort. And it gives us two ways to encounter Jesus one, either in love, freed by sin through his sacrifice, giving his life, or we experience Jesus by his coming judgment. Now, how do you want to experience him? Grace and peace are freely available to you today through faith, but there will come a time when that offer is no more. And so everyone who has pierced him 
that is, that has rejected his love, his grace, his peace, will experience God's wrath in the face of his coming judgment. So we have choices in the book of Revelation now. And this book reminds us that the revelation of Jesus, again, calls us to respond as part of God's kingdom, to respond as priests in worship and service to the church and to the world in sharing the good news of the gospel. So I want to close with this. It's a quote from uh, an American theologian named Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. And he says this, the major point of of revelation is to enable Christians from every age and from every possible circumstance to view what is happening in history from God's point of view rather than from man's and to be comforted and strengthened by it to live for Christ and his glory at all times. Church family, people of God, this is going to be an exciting book for us and one that I know will give you hope and I know that will give you encouragement. And so uh, it is also one that calls us together as a kingdom and as priests. Let's live it out uh, with one another into a watching world. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, I give you thanks for uh, this book. Thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Thank you for the comfort and hope that you give in the last days to the, the age of the church. Lord, would you bring us comfort, bring us hope this week in the face of uh, political craziness surrounding us, in the face of a uh, pandemic where we're all uh, shut in in the face of uh, dealing with um, depression, sadness, um, and trying to persevere. Lord, would you comfort us with your revelation? Would you call us to service through it? And would you make us more like you? We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.